So we are in Luke chapter 22, and tonight we're just going to look at the first six verses of Luke chapter 22. Um, if you were to go over to our offices, which are right across these two driveways, and you were to walk through our offices, um, you'd, you'd probably find my office to be an absolute mess. Um, Pastor Steve's is a close second. Um, Pastor Kent's is ish. Pastor, Steve, Pastor Tim has an incredibly clean office. It's, it's amazing how clean his desk is. But in each one of our offices, you will find um, pictures. And you'll find pictures of our family. Uh, families, I should say. But often you'll find pictures of uh, people that we've ministered with. Ministry teams. Uh, in my office, you'll have my desk. And then to the right, there's a shelf with some books. In the top right section, I have a picture of the first missions trip that I uh, was able to lead. Um, Ron and Jan Hart were leaders in that as well, as long as Sandy Martz. And I have a crew of, I think, 10 to 12, uh, at the time, teenagers. Now, a lot of them have children, and um, they're, you know, they're, they're adults. Uh, and if you were to go to Pastor Steve's office, you'd probably find similar pictures of ministry teams that he's led. If you go to Pastor Kent's office, you'll find pictures of, of uh, ministries that he's led, uh, guys groups and whatnot. Um, you go to Pastor Tim's office, you'll find this, this big kind of, uh, it's not a poster, but it would, it would, it's, it's, it's a big picture of our congregation that we took five years ago. We were all standing out there, and we had the big crane, and, and there's a photograph of all of us, and we're looking up, and it says, celebrating 25 years of ministry. Why am I talking about these pictures? I'm talking about these pictures because in just about every single picture that I can think of, the one in my office, the one in Pastor Tim's office, there's people in those pictures that are no longer walking in the faith. Now, there's a lot of people that are in the faith. But there's quite a few people. I mean, not like dozens and dozens, but, but more than one. That is no longer walking in the faith. People that we partnered with. People that, um, in my case, people that I saw distribute gospel literature. Instruct children. Um, sing songs in front of congregations. In some cases go on multiple missions trips with me that now don't even identify as Christians. Why do I share this? Well, I'm sharing this because as we're looking in Luke chapter 22, we're seeing a circumstance where you have people that are either religiously related to Jesus Christ or relationally related to Jesus Christ acting as enemies of Jesus Christ. You have the high priest, you have basically the temple leadership in cahoots with a disciple of Jesus Christ looking for an opportunity to exterminate Jesus Christ. It's a weird combination of religious and satanic activity. And I say weird because from an earthly standpoint, those two are kind of like oil and water, right? At least like it would seem like they would be. You know, religious activity and satanic activity. And yet, the two of them almost go hand in hand 
in these six verses. So I want us to read them. I want to point out the aspects of religious activity and then satanic activity. And then I, I simply want to make a proposition and then spell it out. And then we'll leave with, a, I think, a pretty simple application. Okay, so let's read Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put him, this is Jesus, to death. For they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They, the chief priests and officers, were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. These six verses, we see quite a bit of religious activity. First of all, Passover. Passover in Jerusalem would have been a time where not only was there the residents there of Israel, uh, of, of immediate Jerusalem uh, participating, but you had people coming from afar. Literally thousands of people would have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This was a very significant religious time. Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover kind of went together. It harkened back to Exodus, right, where the, the, the Israelites were under captivity underneath Egypt, and you had that first Passover where the angel of the Lord in the 10th plague took the firstborn of those who had not anointed the doorframe with the blood of the lamb. So there was a sacrifice of a lamb. Uh, the people here in Israel would have gotten rid of all of the food in their house, especially yeast or leaven, and they would have uh, made this, uh, they, they would have celebrated this Passover. Okay, So it was a really, very religious time. And, and the irony is not lost for Luke here. I mean, Luke, I think, is very careful to show us exactly what is going on nationally, but then also what's going on spiritually. In fact, we didn't read verse 7, uh, but if you were to continue reading verse 7, then came the first day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And that's kind of like foreshadowing, you know? There's going to be a sacrifice. Okay. One that certainly Jesus was well aware of. You know, in this whole kind of scheming that's going on, it's not as if Jesus doesn't know what's going on. He isn't caught off guard. He isn't alarmed when they show up in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, he is in full control. But, during this religious time, you have thousands of people coming. You have chief priests and scribes. You have religious characters. And you have a disciple chosen by Jesus himself. So the religious elements of this passage are, are pretty clear. But the satanic activity is also quite clear. I mean, we have it stated in, in no uncertain terms. Verse 3. But also, when you look at verse 2, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. The fact that the chief priests and scribes the religious hierarchy were looking to kill the Messiah, the Son of God. 
How could that not be satanic? Again, the timing, only in a satanic framework could the leaders of the temple, those who would be overseeing the Passover, would put to death the Lamb of God. You have, of course, Satan and his influence on Judas. And then, just kind of looking at this from a big picture, in the whole scope of Luke, you have both the Jewish leadership and Judas having been eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus had done up to this point. I mean, they'd seen and heard this person. They had watched people not just be healed physically, but healed spiritually. Judas himself being a mouthpiece of that even. So what I want to leave with you tonight is a, a really kind of a discouraging point, but I think the reality. And that is this, that religious activity without Christ can be a prime location for Satan to work. Okay? Religious activity without Christ can be a prime location for Satan to work. Okay? We're going to tease that out here. So what happens... When Satan and religion join forces. What happens when Satan and religion join forces? Well, I'm going to point out three things that, that we see here in this passage. First of all, religious people find themselves doing what they never thought they would do. First of all, religious people find themselves doing what they never thought they would do or maybe that they could do. So when I'm looking, when, it, when I'm saying that, I'm looking at, for example, verse 4. Okay, you have Judas going away, going away from Jesus ostensibly, and discussing with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Now, Judas is described as going to the religious leaders and discussing turning over Jesus. And in fact, when these uh, verbs, we would say, in, in, in this passage, they're stated in such a way that it is quite clear for the reader of Greek who the actor is. Now, in verse 3, you see, and Satan entered into Judas. Now, lest you think, and I don't mean to be like irreverent, but lest you think this is something out of the exorcist where you have a person possessed by the devil doing things that he doesn't understand he's doing. This is not that. This is a man who allowed his heart to be influenced by Satan. He opened the door and allowed Satan to come. And as a result, Judas, and not the devil who made him do it, Judas is the one that's ultimately responsible he can't point the finger and say, well, I wouldn't have done that had there not been Satan here. No, no, no. This was Judas. And the grammar really points this out, plays this out. We see this in, even in verse 6. So Judas consented. You know, this isn't as if they talked him into it. The Greek word here is not ambiguous as to what Judas thought. That word consented, you know, from, a, from an English standpoint, we kind of look at it like, well, okay. I guess so. No, 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 no. In fact, we get our English word homologous from this Greek word. 
Have you ever heard the word homologous? All right. In science, when a cell is about to form sex cells, the chromosomes line up in the middle of the cell. Okay, and then they split, and then they form sex cells. Okay, when those chromosomes line up in the middle of the cell, they call them homologous chromosomes. They're called homologous because there's genes that kind of match up. And so when offspring is produced, you have maybe some genes go to some offspring, and then you have some genes that might be a little bit different go to others. Like, that's why some of your kids may have blue eyes, some may have brown eyes. You know, they get different genes. But those chromosomes are homologous. They are analogous to one another. This is the word here for consent, in that they are working together. They are of the same mind. Judas and the religious leaders. Okay? Now, the initial point I make is religious people find themselves doing what they never thought they could do. Imagine the moment when Judas was chosen by Jesus to become a disciple. And he agreed. And he followed. And he witnessed the works of Jesus. If you were to take Judas along the side and say, Judas, you know, just want you to know, this is what you're going to do. I'm venturing that he's going to respond the same way the other disciples responded when Jesus predicted them denying him. No, no, no. In fact, later on in the evening, when Jesus says, the person who's going to betray me is here at the table, and he hands over the bread to him, how do the other disciples respond? What's he talking about? Uh huh? I mean, they were all wondering. They, they didn't know that Judas was like that. And I think if you were to talk to the religious leaders, the chief priests, and you were to say, you know what? As godly as you profess yourselves to be, how you lead worship on a regular basis, you're going to be, the resp you're going to be responsible for killing, for murdering the Messiah. No, 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 no. No, 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 absolutely And yet you have this weird wedding of religious and satanic activity. And what happens when unbelief is allowing for greater unbelief? You see a natural progression in animosity towards Jesus Christ. And I would say here, doing things that from a human standpoint, no way. There's no way. You know, there's a modern phenomenon that seems to be pretty popular right now, and it's called deconstruction. You ever heard that term, deconstruction? In Christian circles, deconstruction is used in, in context of someone who perhaps at one point in time professed Jesus Christ the Savior and has since kind of fallen away from the faith. They've left the faith, and in doing so, they're deconstructing what they believe. They're kind of pulling it apart and analyzing what it was and more often not analyzing in a very public venue so that they can explain why it is that they no longer hold to the faith that they used to. 
And so you have this phenomenon amongst popular, semi-popular, maybe not popular at all, Christians deconstructing their faith, or professing Christians. They profess to be Christians at one time. They're not Christians. But this kind of deconstruction, I, I had something similar take place, and I told you about the picture in my um, office. One of the mission teams that I took, there was a, a young man who was participating on one of those missions teams, and he and I uh, were reacquainted recently. Um, he had posted something on social media, and I responded to it, inviting him to talk with me because of the nature of what he posted. And so we talked on the phone, and it was a very cordial conversation. Uh, I appreciated him being willing to talk, and you know we kind of reminisced. But, but this particular individual went on no fewer than two mission trips, and his deconstruction is a very public thing. There are young adults in our church that know what this young man is, is believing now because it's there for them to see. And so asking him and talking to him about this faith, I'm thinking, or the faith that he maybe once had, well, he said he had, but no longer has and, and actually is very vocal in saying he does not have it or does not believe it. I'm thinking back to the times where, you know, for example, we're outside Raleigh, North Carolina, going door to door, handing out gospel literature, where we're having, you know, our group meet in a, a small cramped hotel room and doing a book Bible study and, and having him explain, you know, what Jesus is doing in his life. And I'm thinking of that, and then I'm thinking 10 years later, where he's basically saying all the reasons why he doesn't believe that and why he's so vocal. And, and in talking with him, I asked him, I said, you know, wouldn't you see yourself as, as more of kind of like a statement with the clothing of a question? Um, I said, wouldn't you see yourself as just as evangelistic now as you were then, just the other way? And he said, yeah, actually, I think that's fair. In his deconstruction, he hasn't lost the zeal for evangelism. But again, there's this evangelism for the opposite. And so here you have him 10 years ago, hey, you're handing out gospel literature. Would you believe that 10 years from now you're going to be actually maybe not handing out literature but just as vocal in opposition to that? Oh, no, 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 no. But here's the deal. When religious and satanic activity without Christ come together, then people may do things that they would say, ah, I'm I would never do. Okay? Secondly, religious people often find themselves delighting in evil instead of good. And again, this is religion without Christ. Religious activity without Christ. Secondly, religious people find themselves delighting in evil instead of good. Look at verse 5. It says, and they, this is the uh, chief priests and officers of verse 4, they were glad and agreed to give him money. That word glad, you might have a different translation. It says delighted. And I looked through the book of Luke to see where else Luke uses this word delighted. Do you know that he uses this word describing the, the shepherd who goes out and finds, he has 99 sheep back in the pen, but that one is lost, and he finds that sheep, and his response is that he was glad. That same word is used there. 
You know, that same word is used to describe Zacchaeus when Jesus said, I'm going to your house today. That Zacchaeus was delighted. Do you know the same word is used when the multitudes, after Zacchaeus is invited, I'm sorry, after Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, and after the multitudes have seen Jesus' work, they delighted, they were glad in what they had seen? Now again, this can be nothing other than satanic influence to distort evil into something that results in the same outcome as salvation and the glorification of Jesus himself. Let me say that again. This can be nothing other than satanic influence to distort evil like betraying the Messiah, putting to death the king of Israel, and being glad about this alliance. Distorting evil into something that results, the result, the outcome, delighting, is the same as what's being described earlier in the book when a soul is saved or when Jesus Christ is glorified. But what do we see? We see religion without Christ finding its delight not in Christ, but finding it in something that is in opposition to Christ. Thirdly, said already, religious activity without Christ, religious people find themselves doing what they never thought they could do. They find themselves delighting in evil instead of good. And then finally, religious people and those who are close to Jesus find themselves to be the enemies of Jesus. Like people close to Jesus find themselves to be enemies of Jesus. Okay? Where do we see this? Well, verse 6. Judas has said to that he began looking for a good opportunity to betray. This is the same verb as what we see in verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking. Okay? So chief priests and scribes were seeking for an opportunity. And so Judas was seeking for an opportunity. To do what? They were trying to find a way to put Jesus to death. The Pharisees' antagonism was outward and public, but Judas' antagonism towards Jesus really was no different. Okay? Though Judas followed along with Jesus for years, at the end of the story, he found himself to be an enemy of Jesus, no different than the religious leadership. Edwards, commentator, notes that of the three mentions of Judas in Luke 22, all three of them carry a context of intimacy with Jesus. So we see here in verse 3, it says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, and notice this phrase, belonging to the number of the twelve. So Luke is careful to identify Judas as one of the twelve followers of Jesus Christ. Later on in this passage, and I alluded to this earlier, Luke describes the Last Supper, where Judas is there at the table, and he's named. And he's there, eating with Jesus. And then further on, when Judas betrays Jesus in this chapter, he betrays him with a, what? A kiss. So these three intimate actions 
or three intimate, I, I would say, descriptions of Judas in this chapter. Someone who is close to Jesus, and yet an enemy of Jesus. And here we see, as this, as this commentator says, that Satan can target those who are close to Jesus. Satan can target those who are close to Jesus. They find themselves to be enemies of Jesus. What was going through Judas's head? Why did he betray him in the first place? Well, we know he was an unbeliever. Jesus describes him as a devil in John chapter 6, right? He was an unbeliever. But we also learn in John chapter 13 that Judas had a love for money. And we see that he was paid a fee. Matthew 16, 26, What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will he give in exchange for his soul? Okay. Well, in Judas's case, it was money. It was his love of money. It was greed. And I want to wrap up here by just asking some simple questions. Because, and it's, and it's in relationship to, to this last point, those who are close to Jesus find themselves to be enemies of Jesus. And again, these are religious people without Jesus Christ. In the next week of activity here in Luke 22 and forward, we see those who are closest to him abandon him. They blow it. Judas betrayed Jesus. But the other disciples abandoned him as well. What was the difference? Well, the difference was repentance. The difference was that the disciples, the other 11, turned from their sin and persevered in their faith. Now think of this. And I know we know this, but think of this. When we think of Judas, you know, you could think of him in the context of Dante, right? Where Dante puts Judas in the lowest pits of hell with Brutus and Cassius. Right? He's the worst of the worst. But we also think of the other 11 disciples who, though not guilty of the same sin, still blew it. And they were so close to Jesus for such a long time. And as we look at, at how this has played out, I know we know that coming to church and being religious doesn't save our souls. We know that. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, that save us, but it's according to his mercy, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of works, lest any person should boast, right? We know that. But the fact is, is that there was still one that Satan targeted who was an unbeliever who walked right along with the rest of the believers and they never knew anything different. We read in Matthew of the wheat and the tares and how they grow together and they look an awful lot alike and it's going to be the judgment day for some where they're actually discerned. But I would be remiss in talking with a Sunday evening crowd of a lot of diversity of age and religious or spiritual experience. 
to ask yourself, are you truly born again? Maybe if I can put it differently. You know, the disciples were warned against, you know, they were, they were warned that they were going to abandon Jesus Christ, right? And they said, no, 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 and they did. But Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. And we can surmise that it was money. And he didn't repent. Are there things in your life to where, and I was asking myself this question as I'm going through this passage. You know, what would serve to be maybe that sin? I mean, is there anything that could get me to betray Jesus in this way? I mean, is there anything in my life that I could see creeping in or having crept in to where I could get to my... And again, it's not that I know my heart better than God knows me. But I look at this and I know the content of my faith. I know I, I have assurance of my faith. But part of persevering in my faith is recognizing those sins that could cause me to stumble and then rooting them out, confessing, forsaking, and growing. But what the unbeliever does is the unbeliever lives in that sin. They don't confess. They have a lot of religious activity to cover up for it. But the unbeliever ultimately doesn't. They trade Jesus for that sin. That's, that's it. It's a trade-off here. Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas traded Jesus for money. He was an unbeliever. He was influenced by Satan. But it's on him. And when it was all said and done, Judas would rather have what he wanted instead of having Jesus be the Lord of his life. That's the question I think you need to ask. Young and old. Young and old. What is it that could be held on to even at the expense of Jesus? I mean, we live in a very affluent society. What if we stopped having that affluence? What if our faith began to cost us more socially, economically, relationally. You know, in Matthew 19, Jesus tells of individuals who, when they follow Christ, it costs them their family. You know, which means that, I mean, it stands to reason, if someone were to hold on to their family more than Jesus, then they've made a trade-off. Not that they've lost their salvation, it's just that they've held on to something and not had Jesus be their Lord. Okay? So again, I'm sharing this with you, not to be heavy, but to look at an unbeliever who was so close to Christ and had so much quote-unquote evidence of his discipleship and yet was so much an enemy of Christ. We take comfort in the perseverance. We take comfort in the long-suffering of Jesus because those 11 who blew it served as the foundation of the church. Those were the ones that Christ, knowing all things, saw as the foundation. 
and in turn would turn the world upside down for him. You know, Pastor Tim says all the time, it's never too late to do right. Maybe tonight is the night where, in self-reflection, you've recognized the sin that is rooting in there and that is competing for your allegiance. And you have a choice. And because you are saved, not to earn your salvation, but because you are saved, you're reaffirming that allegiance to Jesus Christ by repenting and starting to obey. I'm not going to throw any sticks in any fire. I don't have any bonfires up here. I'm not going to have the piano start playing. I've decided to follow Jesus. We're not going to do that. But I would say, what is it that competes for your discipleship of Jesus? And what's going to win out in the end? Okay. I love you. We love you. I'm asking myself that same question. I hope that you're praying for one another as you persevere. But by God's grace, if I were to take a photograph of this room and put it in my office, I would really hope that 10, 20, 30 years from now, if you're not in glory already, you'll be persevering in the faith. And please hear me. Every day that those individuals have the opportunity to wake up and breathe is another opportunity for them to repent. So I'm not writing anybody off. I am not God. Okay? Please hear me when I say that. But at the same time, Christians will persevere in the faith. All right? All right, let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thank you for your loving kindness and patience with us. Lord, we have the example of Judas and we have the example of these religious leaders. And Lord, this passage just drips with irony because of their whole celebration, everything around them going on, having that religious flavor, and yet being so devoid of truth. Not because it's untrue, but because they rejected the way, the truth, and the life. Would that not be us? Lord, make us a pure church. May we be holy and spotless, ever continuing to grow in our Christ-likeness, or in some cases, if it may be appropriate, to finally turn from sin and make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We don't accept Christ because of our pedigree. We don't accept Christ because the number of Bible classes we've had. Lord, he must be Lord of our lives. And I pray that to be true of every soul, not only listening here, but Lord, those who would call Grace Church their church. May we be mindful and loving of one another, patient and kind, demonstrating an example of Christ's likeness as we have the opportunity to speak into others' lives. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And as dark as this story is, we know who wins the day. We know how the story ends. And Lord, we rejoice and walk in hope, not in guilt and shame, but in hope. Lord, come soon. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.